Right, we have a few little things, as usual, just to bring to your attention before we go on with our main talk. A couple of interesting things here, and, and some are quite challenging as to how our country is going. I don't buy any tabloid newspaper, but there was a report on the 29th of March uh, in, in one of the tabloids. The Sun, actually, I think it was in. And it's about a, a white Islamic convert. He was on a bus in Berkshire, and he rolled out his prayer mat in the aisle and knelt on the floor facing Mecca. Passengers watched in amazement as he held out his palms towards the sky, bowed his head and began to chant. Some of the people there, they filmed it on their on their uh, mobile phones. And then the, the, the one chap was saying he looked English and had a London accent. He looked like a Muslim convert with a big bushy beard. One person thought it was a joke, something like uh, would be on television with Beadle or some of these things. But eventually everyone started complaining and he got up, opened the doors and asked everybody to get out. And uh, then he said his prayers. And after a few minutes, the driver opened the doors and asked everybody back on again. But then they saw there was a, a, a rucksack, so none of them would get back in again. It's quite an amazing story. One fellow said, I'm not getting in there now. And uh, he didn't. And uh, the bus company, when they were told about it, wouldn't believe them at first. But then they produced the video of it. The Muslim guy said, I asked everyone to get off the bus because I needed to pray. I was running late and had not had time. I pray five times a day as a Muslim, but I don't normally ask people to get off the bus to do it. It would be interesting to see what report comes from the bus company. But it just shows you the way things are going in this country. That was in the, the sun. The Daily Mail following up that again not uh, to do with that story but uh, a senior church of England on the 4th of the 4th the Daily Mail had an article a senior church of England member called yesterday for the building of mosques to be banned and this was Alison Ruff who is a member of this general synod she says if we don't watch out we will become an Islamic state it's that serious and uh, leading clerics have been divided over how the church should respond to Islam. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, caused controversy by calling for Sharia law to be given full legal status. And she, uh, a former nurse and magistrate, is a conservative evangelical regarded as one of the more outspoken synod members. She responded to Dr. Williams' Sharia lecture by calling for the Archbishop's resignation. But she was of the opinion that we are becoming really a Muslim satellite state. And uh, the Bishop of Rochester, who was uh, Nazir Ali, who was born in Pakistan, he has warned against the spread of Islamic no-go areas and said amplified calls to prayer at mosques impose an Islamic character on nearby areas. And so, 
what was the response of the Muslims to this woman? Iniyat Bonglar Allah, Assistant Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain, he said, these are very narrow-minded and bigoted remarks. Now in the light of what he said, listen to this. The following is from the Pakistan Christian Post on March the 29th. And here's what the report said. Anwar Ashiki, president of the Saudi Center for Middle East Strategic Studies, says that churches will not be allowed in Saudi Arabia unless they recognize the Prophet Muhammad. It is against the law in this Muslim nation to hold non-Islamic religious gatherings or to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, supposedly it is lawful for expatriates to worship in their own homes, but in practice even this is not allowed. In June 2006, four African Christians were imprisoned in Jeddah. In November 2005, a Saudi Arabian court sentenced a teacher to 40 months in prison and 750 lashes in a public flogging for discussing the Bible and praising Jews. And it goes on like that. There are dozens of instances where people have been jailed or flogged for preaching the gospel. And this has been done with the knowledge and approval of the royal family and by means of the nation's oil wealth. Israel is not recognized as a sovereign state in Saudi Arabian textbooks and its name does not appear on any map. No Jews of any nationality are allowed into Saudi Arabia. And because of this, the American military, because they had Jews within their ranks, they had to invent another category of person. They called them Protestant bees. And on the tags that they wear, they call them dog tags, they had their religion as Protestant bee. And put this on the dog tags of Jewish soldiers who were stationed there. And this guy says that we are bigoted and narrow-minded. In the light of that, that remark and that comment uh, is ludicrous. But that's the way things are going. And we will not say a word against Saudi Arabia because we need to worship at the altar of finance and big business. So there we are. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's always nice to get away from those things back to the Word of God. I'm going to read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. If thou shalt hear, say, in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there. That's interesting. The cities were given by God. So they're his cities. So that's the point just to remember. To dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, have gone out from among you, and have drawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which we have not known. Then shalt thou inquire and make search, and ask diligently, and behold, if it be truth, and the thing certain 
that such an abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof, and the, with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shalt burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof, every whit. For the Lord thy God, and it shall be an heap forever. It shall not be built again. And they shall cleave naught of the cursed thing to thine hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show thee mercy and have compassion upon thee and multiply thee as he hath sworn unto thy fathers. When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments which I command thee this day to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. Another very serious situation here. You know, just looking back, we've had the first five verses. We had the punishment for false prophets. And the, the punishment for prophesying falsely was death. Go to Jeremiah. Just I thought we'd bring, recap a little bit on this. Jeremiah chapter 28. An interesting story here. In Jeremiah chapter 28, a man called Hananiah. Hananiah was prophesying falsely. God was taking the people into captivity. But he started prophesying in front of everybody in the house of the Lord. It was a very serious thing. He was, was in the house of the Lord and he was prophesying in the presence of the priests and all the people. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Oh, it's all going to be over fairly soon. You're going to be back home within two years. I will bring again to this place Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years they're all going to come back. But Jeremiah knew that they were in there for the long haul. Seventy years they were going to be away. And so what did Jeremiah do? Well, just to cut a long story short, if you go to verse 15, then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Oh, he said, you may say that they're going to be back in two years, but that's a lie. Go read the story yourself in Jeremiah 28. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth this year thou shalt die. Because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. He had prophesied against the Lord in the house of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, You have made this people trust in a lie. 
He was a false prophet. God intervened. God acted. And Hananiah died. False prophets. Anyone who makes this people to trust in a lie. Are still an abomination to the Lord. You know there's a strange phenomenon. In the world. It's one of these odd things. It doesn't seem to matter in churches or cults or denominations if a so-called prophet prophesies falsely or not. They still believe them. It's a strange thing. And even though it's proved afterwards that the person told a lie, the people still accept it. You have this in two of the main cults, I suppose. Jehovah's Witnesses. They've had so many false prophecies from their leaders over the years. Seventh-day Adventists was the same. They had, and they had to change the whole meaning of things in order to try and twist it. But they were wrong. They were false prophecies. And yet, look at the number of Jehovah's Witnesses that are around the place. Look at the number of Seventh-day Adventists there. All based on false prophecies. The people still believe. It doesn't seem to make any difference. And you know, in the Christian world, it's the same. Just an example is a man called Gerald Coates. Gerald Coates is a, a chap who has a big, big following in the United Kingdom. And despite very public prophecies, false prophecies he's made, people still believe. One was one which he, which he apparently delivered at uh, Spring Harvest in front of everybody. And uh, he was talking about Westminster Chapel, uh, a place and not only to Westminster Chapel he said but the whole of the area of Westminster the whole district was going to have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and it was going to be so great he said that taxi drivers would be so uh, in their cabs the Holy Spirit would be so powerful that they'd have to stop the cabs and get out and get out of their taxis nothing like that has ever happened but it hasn't made any difference to Gerald Coates. He went to uh, New Zealand in 1991. And he, he said there was going to be a, a, an earthquake. A big earthquake. And Lake um, Topo was going to overflow and everything. And it was going to be devastation. And it was to happen in April. And you know, some of the gullible leaders of the Elam church out there, they took this very seriously. And they instigated a, a national campaign in the media to, to, to warn people of what was going to happen. And 44 Elam churches actually started taking survival classes. April came and went and nothing happened. And it made the church and evangelicalism in New Zealand a laughing stock. What happened to Gerald Coates? He came home, left them all over there, and that was that. But people still believe him. That's the amazing thing. And false prophets, that's what happens. And we've been warned in Scripture again and again and again that in the latter days false prophecies and false prophets will occur. Jesus warned about them. Beware of false prophets 
which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. In the last days, when, uh, during the tribulation, there will be many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Luke 6.26 Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. The false prophets are spoken well of. So if, if people start speaking well of you, beware because they did the same to the false prophets. Peter, in 2 Peter 2 verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people. In the olden days, in the Old Testament, he's saying there were false prophets. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. 1 John 4 verse 1 Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of, are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We're warned that there are going to be false prophets. The church has been warned, but they continue to believe these false prophets. There are dozens of them. We could go, we could do talk from now till next week about the false prophets in the church. But just a couple of examples like I've given you. There are many around. So that was the false prophets. That was the first thing we looked at in this chapter. The second thing was falsehood and error within families. And the penalty for that was also death. We have to beware that we are not drawn away by personal relationships into error. And now we have the third section within this chapter. Falsehood within cities. Whole communities. And the penalty? Death. And utter destruction of those cities or towns. One thing, just look back at verse 7. You know, how do we... How, how is it that people are gullible by uh, false prophecies and error and teaching? It says in verse 7, going back to 6, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, nor thou nor thy fathers, namely the gods of the people which are around about you. Nigh unto thee or far from thee. Those that are near and those that are far from thee. You know, certain errors, certain evils may be near to us. They may be so like the truth, so near to the truth, that they are, will deceive many. You know, I remember years ago, I've said it before, rat poison. I have a label for rat poison out there. And the, the amount of good stuff in rat poison is something like 99.95%. There's only 0.005% evil, deadly poison in rat poison. Most of it's good. And that's the trouble with error these days. Most of it's good. But there's always a little bit of poison. And that kills. That destroys 
Certain evils may be near to us. They may be so like the truth as to deceive us. Second Timothy chapter 3. We're jumping around a little bit today. But Paul was always in his epistles writing about the errors that will come into the church. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Perilous times, dangerous times. And he goes on to describe all these people who will come in who will bring in perilous doctrine. And the doctrines and their way of operating will be so obvious that you will instantly recognize them as false. No. No, you won't. They will look so like the real thing that you'll have to be on your guard. That's what he's telling them. It is chapter 3 and verse 8 of Second Timothy. They mention two people. We come across two men. Janes and Jambres. Now it says, As Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Who were these two men? Who were they? Well, they're not mentioned by name anywhere else in Scripture. But from the connotation and the the background, we know that they appear in Exodus chapter 7. Moses and Aaron went in before God. And God had given them certain signs to do before Pharaoh to try and allow the people to go and to be released from slavery in Egypt. And they performed these wonders. Exodus 7.11 we say then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers Janes and Jambres and their friends now the magicians of Egypt they also did in like manner with their enchantments they did the same thing I'm sure if I'd have been there that day and seen these fellows performing exactly as Moses and Aaron we'd have said that's very impressive. These fellows must be worshipping the same God. Very convincing. But what it says is they withstood Moses and Aaron. Or more importantly they withstood Jehovah. The God. It says here now as Janes and Jambres withstood Moses. So do these also who resist the truth. These men that are coming in perilous times will do exactly the same as those two men did before Moses. They'll nearly do the same thing. You'll be very easily convinced that they're speaking the truth. It's not going to be terribly obvious. It's going to be very close. It's going to be near. That's what it says. So often the truth is is just... A very good imitation. The evil <laughs> is so like the real. It has a form of what is right, but lacks the spiritual power, the godliness, and the vitality, the real life, the living word of God. We need to be careful with the error that's near us. On the other hand, it says, are far away 
in, 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 Jeremiah, in Deuteronomy chapter 13 in verse 7 that which is near you or that which is far away now some of the obvious errors which lead people astray seem to be so far fetched that you wonder how people believe them but we are seeing these type of things which seem a way out becoming more and more acceptable today is it because of their strangeness and the novelty of them as a kind of a fascination for people some are so far removed from the truth of scripture that you even wonder how people think them up but that's what happens we've said it before when someone goes away from the knowledge of the truth of the word of God and stop believing the truths of scripture they don't stop believing in things they believe in everything or anything instead of the believing the word of God they start believing in all these strange other beliefs so whether what we believe is close to the word of God or so far fetched everything is to be utterly refused and refused and as John says it's to be gauged by the word of God it's what we have heard from the beginning and listen to what John says I'll, I'll read them out you didn't turn to them First John 2.24 as for you let that which ye have heard from the beginning abide in you all these new ideas are made up by men John says get back to what we taught you at the beginning get back to the word of God let that which ye have heard from the beginning abide in you if what ye have heard from the beginning abides in you you shall abide also in the son and in the father 1 John 3.11 for this is a message which ye have heard from the beginning that we should love one another 2 John 1.6 and this is love that we should walk according to his commandments this is the commandment according as ye have heard from the beginning that ye might walk in it as we said when one rejects what we have heard from the beginning it does not result in a belief in nothing it seems to bring in a belief in anything anything goes get back to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 4 it says ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him so moving on to the passage we read starting at verse 13 these are men children of Belial gone out from among you and they have drawn away the inhabitants of their city saying let us go and serve other gods whom ye have not known how sad it was that within the family of Israel there were those who 
were morally worthless. That's what Belial means. They were morally worthless. Came to, to mean eventually in scripture the, the, the sons of Satan. But they were morally worthless. As having nothing in common with the God of Israel. Those then would draw men after them. To follow other gods. And much more sinister it says to serve other gods. To work on their behalf. To labor for other gods. To serve other gods. You know Paul had a great concern for the church. He had a wonderful love for the churches. And in 2 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, pleads for the churches. And we've read this so often, but we read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says to them, those who would be drawn away after other gods, he's saying... Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Sons of the devil, worthless, moralless people. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Keep away from its idols. You're already a temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a wonderful promise. God says he'll dwell with us. He'll walk with us. He'll be our God and we shall be his people. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Exactly as it says here. Don't cleave. It says in verse uh, uh, 17 in Deuteronomy, And they shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand. Touch not the unclean thing, Paul says here. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. And he says, having when you've thought about that, those wonderful promises I'm going to be your God, I'm going to walk with you, you're going to be my people having therefore he says, these promises the next verse, the first verse in the next chapter, having therefore these promises, the promises that God has given in those few verses, dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God not wonderful all the promises what are you going to do about it he says therefore having these promises let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God walking in holiness with God separation that's what holiness means separation from everything else and you say as we read this passage here in Deuteronomy 13. Surely there cannot be such people as those who would draw us away after false gods within the churches. Well just turn turn, uh, quickly to Revelation chapter 2. There were seven churches that John wrote to or the Spirit of God wrote to 
And there's one here called Thyatira. In verse 18 of chapter 2 of Revelation. We read from verse 20. This, this seemed quite a good church. Let's read it. Maybe we start at 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things said the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. That was pretty good. They did a lot of charity work. They did a lot of pay. They had patience. They had service. They had faith. But, he says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. They had this woman there, a false prophet, and they permitted her to, to speak. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give on every one of you according to your works. The problem was this false teacher. The church had put up with this Jezebel, the symbolic name given to this woman. Now there was obviously no indication that the church should have put her to death. What they should have done, they should have put her teaching, her doctrine to death. They should have killed her doctrine and stopped it, which was she was being permitted to expound. And the spirit declares complete displeasure and the judgment of a holy God on that church. She was a false prophet. She was a false teacher. She was leading others astray. That doctrine that she was preaching should have been put to death. And in our passage today in Deuteronomy, if this situation occurred where a city in any part of Israel began to worship another god then others others in other cities were to make an inquiry and to check out if this was true or not and if such a report were true well then it's laid out very clearly what was going to happen they were to, to burn that city to the ground they were to destroy everybody within the city they were to pile all the stuff on the street and burn it they were to destroy, they were to wipe out the name of that city would appear and no one was ever to build that city again and thou shalt cleave naught of the accursed thing to thine hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger that was very, this was a very difficult thing to do now the question surely could be asked what business was it of one town in the south of of, of Israel to go to another city in the north of Israel and to carry out this work why 
Surely it was up to that city up there to, to worship in any way they liked. The simple answer is that God regarded Israel as one entity. They were a nation, a chosen people, a peculiar nation specific to him. He regarded Israel as one. And if you look at the words that God speaks here, it's as if he's speaking to one person. Now this is where these and those come in to their own. He says, Then shalt thou inquire and make a search. Thou shalt smite and thou shalt gather all the as if it's God speaking to them personally. We would say you or ye. Ye shall inquire. But God is saying thou shalt inquire. Much more personal. And ye shall gather all the spoil. No, thou shalt gather all the spoil. Everyone in Israel had a responsibility to each other. He's speaking them as to one person, to a nation as one complete entity. Now we need to explain this a little bit further. You know all, everyone knows the story of the fall of Jericho. Jericho was the first place they were going after they come over Jordan. Jericho was the place they were going to display God's power to the people in Canaan. And in Joshua 6, 17, it says, And the city shall be accursed, the same way as this city here, which was going to be destroyed, which had done this evil thing. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Jericho was accursed. And ye, in any wise, yourselves, Keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But we know what happened. Achan, he saw the goodly cloth and he saw some gold and he grabbed them and he took them and put them in his tent. Went back and started fighting again. There was a wonderful victory at Jericho. But later on they had to go to a little insignificant town called Ai. And they sent up the soldiers to Ai and they were routed by the people of Ai. Joshua was very concerned and he prostrated himself before the Lord. And here's what God's answer was. Achan, one man, had sinned. But here's what God said. Joshua 7.11 Israel hath sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Israel hath sinned. One man hath sinned. God looked down. As far as he was concerned Israel had sinned. The whole nation was treated by God as one. In God's eyes, Israel was one. 
And so no Israelite could sit back in cold indifference to any evil that happened within the camp because it affected him in a very real and serious way. It was bound then in Deuteronomy for any Israelite, each of them individually, to root out the evil and deal with it because they were special to God. And they couldn't move on in further victories for God unless that problem was sorted out. Now moving on to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is described as a body, one body. Many members but one body. When one member suffers, the whole body is affected. Each member within a human body is dependent on each other member. But it's all one body. If I hurt my finger, it affects my whole body. The church's members are so all under the headship of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Let, we weren't going to read this, but 1 Corinthians 12. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. We might have time to, to do this. 1 Corinthians 12. Because it... It, it makes it so clear the principle that I'm trying to get over in our passage today. 1 Corinthians 12. We read quickly verses 12, 12 to 20. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Or if the ear shall say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, it is therefore not of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole hear, were hearing, where? And he goes on to talk about the body is one body, and whoever is, whatever member is affected within that body affects the whole, the whole membership. You can read the rest of it when you go home. Each believer is a member of the body of Christ. The essential unity of the body is a truth that must be grasped by faith, the essential unity of the body. If there is an error then that error must be killed. If there's something wrong with your body, it's affecting the whole body, so you must cure whatever's affecting that member or else the whole body will suffer. And we get that into our heads. It, it gives us a whole different slant on how we should live our lives. How watchful this should make each of us in our personal lives. You, you may say, as I have, we often sadly uh, imply by the way we act and the way we behave, what I do makes little difference. That is my opinion, maybe, but it's not God's opinion. If one member suffer, he says, 
all members suffer with it. If my lifestyle is not in accordance with the scriptures, then that affects the whole testimony and witness of the body of Christ. So in the church of God, if everything if anything goes wrong with any individual member, all members are affected through the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, connected by the Holy Spirit. And so it behoves us each one to live godly lives and not to cleave to any accursed thing as Achan did. It affected the whole of Israel. The way we live and the way we act as we see, as we look at Deuteronomy 13, God's principle was that it affected the whole of Israel. It affects the body, the church of Jesus Christ. And that brings us pretty well to the end of chapter 13. You know, I keep looking back and seeing things. I was sitting there before you came in and I said, that's the end of But you know, look at it. How, how was, if you go to chapter verse 15, how was this error to be cured in the church it says with the edge of the sword how are we to defeat error in our in, in our churches and in, 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 in the, the body of Christ by the sword the sword of the spirit which is the word of God they were to use the edge of the sword we were to use we are to use the sword of the spirit in, in seeking to root out error and untruths and false prophecies and all the rest of it in the church and so with this wonderful thought of one body we come to remember our Lord this morning in the breaking of bread his body was broken and poured and his blood poured out for you and for me it brings it follows on very nicely the thought of one body the symbol of his body broken for you and for me so that we may become members of his united body, the church of Jesus Christ. Verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. His body was broken. He died for you and for me. Wounded for me. Wounded for me. There on the cross he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions and now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me.